13th of November last year, I was on holiday in Rome on my way to St. Peter's Square in the Vatican City when news reached me that Dr. Eamon Phoenix had passed away. I was aware that he had been unwell. Nevertheless, the news still left me in complete shock and disbelief. Eamon was in my thoughts all of that day as I explored the Vatican Museum and the Sistine Chapel. And later, as I queued for admission to St. Peter's Basilica, uh, I got inside and I decided that I was going to say a prayer for Eamon and his family. And I wouldn't describe myself as a religious person. Those who know me will know that I'm not from a Catholic background, but it seemed like an appropriate thing to do at the time. Because for me, Eamon was a hero. He was everything that I wanted and still want to be. And for that reason, uh, this podcast episode is very much a personal and anecdotal reflection on someone who I regard as our historian laureate. Eamon, of course, would have blushed at that description. I know because I put it to him when I was chairing a panel discussion for the Year 21 podcast, and he did blush. Good evening, and welcome to the Year 21 journey, live from the Eastside Visitor Centre on Belfast, Snootnards Road. Thanks go to Claire and Chris for assembling a stellar panel. My name is Jason Burke, historian and host of the Historical Belfast podcast, which, for the purposes of tonight, can be referred to as the second best local history <laughs> podcast on the airwaves, I think. Uh, alongside me are your critically acclaimed Year 21 podcast hosts, Declan Harvey and Tara Mills. On the other side of me is historian and broadcaster Dr. Eamon Phoenix, who was described to me recently as Northern Ireland's historian laureate. So Year 21 reconstructs the event. I feel pretty confident in saying that Eamon is the reason that I do what I do, whatever it is that I do. And here's why. Somewhat late to the party. My first memories of Eamon would have been circa 2010. I'd only recently graduated and had somehow managed to bag myself a job at the Ulster Museum. And as part of our training and development, we were permitted to seek out courses that would enhance our understanding of the museum galleries. Being from a history background, of course, I sought out history classes to attend and I decided to go along to uh, a 10-week course on the Irish Revolutionary Period hosted by Strammillis College and taught by Eamon. Looking back on it now, this was Eamon at his brilliant best. In a small classroom setting of about 30 people and with the class hanging off his every word. I was utterly mesmerised by what could only be described as a weekly performance of historical episodes which oozed charisma. From the impersonations of historical characters such as Wee Joe Devlin, to the witty one-liners, to the props which would often emerge from his pockets as makeshift historical documents. I'd never seen anything like it before. But there and then I became a fan of his, which is an unusual thing to say about an historian, but as we all know, Eamon had fans, and if you don't know what I mean by that, let me explain. It was during this same course at Stram Millis that I became acquainted with the unofficial Eamon Phoenix fan club. And by this I mean that a majority of the people in the class, who were mostly retired folk, had signed up for several of Eamon's courses in the same term and were repeat attenders over many years. 
He knew them all by name and, and trying to get a, a chat with him during a tea break or even after the class was pretty much impossible as a result of the prompt and lengthy queue which would always form, but equally Eamon would have time for each and every one of them. Another fantastic trait that he had. I remember during one interval he fielded a question about the origins of a particular surname which prompted similar questions from practically everyone in the class and to say that he dealt with them all expertly would be an understatement. It's interesting though when I think back to that particular Strammillis course I have very little recollection of the historical content of the course because what has stuck with me most uh, was not what was delivered but how it was delivered. And in some ways this is what Eamon was all about. He never struck me as a historian who was in the business of constructing and communicating a particular narrative on the various episodes of our history or for that matter would he be engaged in any sort of revisionist history. I don't intend that to be a criticism, and hopefully I'm not being unfair to him by saying that, but when I think of other prominent historians who are in the public eye as much as Eamon was, uh, Professor Dermot Farrader, to use one example, often we are aware of them because they are so opinionated, or they are revisionist in some way. But that wasn't the case with Eamon, if you see what I mean. Controversy wasn't his sport. Instead, Eamon was a master of having what I would call an encyclopedic approach to history. He was a master of the what happened, when it happened, and how it happened. And in this regard, and in terms of Irish history, he was unrivaled. Eamon, in many ways, became the face of what we call the decade of centenaries here in Northern Ireland. His ability to effectively translate contentious and complex episodes of the past meant that he was well placed to be at the forefront of these tricky anniversaries and effectively playing the role of society's history teacher on our television screens, on our radios and in our community halls up and down the country. It was during the decade of centenaries that I got to know Eamon a bit from being on the circuit so to speak, out and about delivering talks and community engagement I'd watched on from the preliminary stages in 2011, guided at that time by the Community Relations Council, who would later present Eamon with an award for his efforts, uh, through the centenary of the Ulster Covenant in 2012, and then crucially the anniversary of the First World War. And I say crucially because my own research at the time was solely focused on East Belfast and its contribution to the Great War. And our paths then crossed properly, for the first time in about 2014, when the BBC invited Eamon and I to do a live broadcast from the Somme Heritage Centre on the 4th of August, a hundred years to the day that Britain declared war on Germany. I was a bag of nerves, not only because it was my first live broadcast at that point, but because I was going to do it with Eamon, and how on earth was I going to be able to follow anything that Eamon Phoenix said? The broadcast went really well, and as you would expect, Eamon stole the show in the trenches of the Somme Heritage Centre that morning. But again, my lasting memory of that day is not what we talked about with Noel Thompson. It was the long chats I had with Eamon before and after, where he seemed to really take an interest in me and my research, taking notes around the margins of an Irish news newspaper. Incidentally, I definitely saw Eamon give at least one lecture using notes that were scribbled around the edges of an Irish news.
I also learned that day of Eamon's own family connections to East Belfast and the First World War, and so there was much to talk about, and we developed, I think, a good rapport. And from that moment on, really, our paths would cross more and more frequently. I'd get invitations to speak at various events as Eamon began putting my name forward for things, including Belfast City Hall's Reflections on 1916, where we worked on some joint tours of the exhibition, but also took turns at delivering keynote addresses to the dignitaries at the launch of the exhibition. However, one of my most memorable uh, events from that period involved uh, a bus run uh, to Dublin, as has already been alluded to, with some UDA ex-prisoners, of all people, who I think had funding to look at the Battle of the Somme and, and Easter Rising in the Round, and they'd been doing some work with, with Eamon and I separately, and it culminated in this trip. Uh, we were to meet at the Andy Terry Interpretive Centre on the Newton Arge Road. We were to get the bus to Kilmainham Jail for a visit, uh, lunch somewhere in Dublin city centre, and then an oriented bus tour of key locations associated with the Easter Rising. Now, bearing in mind, Eamon was supposed to have organised this trip, or at least that's how it was put to me. You can imagine my surprise whenever we got to Kilmainham Jail and found that the place was closed. <laughs> so I'm looking at Eamon, and Eamon's looking at me, and we're looking at the UDA prisoners. <laughs> And one of them steps forward and says, Eamon, do you mean to say we've tried to, be, we've tried to stay out, out, out of jail all our lives and now you're telling us that we can't get in? <laughs> Which broke the ice and Eamon then phoned, to his credit, phoned the Taoiseach's office. Uh, <laughs> and someone came down and opened Kilmainham Jail and we got in. And that just proves the esteem in which Eamon was held, because not everybody could have made that phone call and got that resolution. But the fun didn't end there on that day with Eamon, because he whisks us through Dublin city centre on a walking tour at pace on a bustling Saturday afternoon. Um, and I asked him, because I was just sort of learning the trade of taking tours myself at that point, and I said, why, why do you walk so far ahead of the group? You know, and he said, because if I, if I stay back, then they'll start talking to me, you know, and they'll never get anywhere. But the flip side of that coin was that a few people got lost. And so we had to, there was a rescue mission then in Dublin city centre to find these ex-UDA prisoners before we could get our lunch. So all sorts of chaos uh, was going on. Um, eventually we did get our lunch. We headed out then on the bus tour. Um, and I think I might have told a few stories on the microphone and he might have told a few. Uh, but then he was, he was talking about the Battle of Mount Street Bridge. Um, and as he's telling us this story about the, the battalion of the Sherwood Foresters coming across Mount Street Bridge and being engaged by the rebels, um, so engaging was his story, I don't think anybody in the bus noticed that we'd been round the same route about four or five times. <laughs> now, he's telling the story and trying to direct the bus driver uh, at the same time, but the bus driver hadn't a clue where he was going. So Eamon's prolonging the story out and he sort of eloquently says, you know, we'll pull over here and we'll ask this gentleman, he'll, he'll tell us how to get the Mount Street Bridge. Um, so he pulled over and after telling us how important this site was for the last 10 or 15 minutes, he got out and asked the guy, the guy had never heard of it, didn't, he? didn't know what it was. So on we went along the road and uh, he says, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop off here and we'll ask, these, we'll ask these two ladies on the street. And so he got off the bus and he came back on as quickly as anything with a red face and with his tail between his legs. It turned out to be a statue of two women <laughs> talking on the street.
And so as the bus was once again in wrinkles laughing, we decided to call it a day and head for home, allowing Eamon and I to chat for the two hours or so back to Belfast. And it was during this chat that two things came out, really. The remarkable story of James Mitchell, the UVF man from East Belfast, who witnessed the Easter rising from his room in the Gresham Hotel. I told him that I might be able to get a photograph of Mitchell, and he was delighted because he wanted to turn this story into a book. The other thing that came out of the chat was a great one-liner, which I managed to make use of as a title for one of my master's essays. Eamon had been asking me about my experiences of the First World War commemorations and how it was being received by the communities, etc. And I happened to mention how I had recently heard a complaint within the Unionist community that they felt that there was too much focus on the 16th Irish Division and the role of the nationalist community in the war. I felt it would make for a good essay and quick as a flash, Eamon said, ah, you should call it the greening of the Great War, which he thought was hilarious and I thought was great. So I did exactly that and I titled my essay, The Greening of the Great War. For most of us, our engagement then with the Decade of Centenaries came to an end when we explored the contested story of partition and the creation of the Northern Ireland state. It was during this particular anniversary that Eamon really came into his own, in my opinion. We have a shared history, but not a common memory of that history, he would say, and at no time did it seem more applicable than this one. Our paths would cross again frequently during this period, and being the events programmer at the Linen Hall Library at the time, and overseeing the centenary programme for the library, I had him in at least three times that year, including for an antiques roadshow-style event where the general public were encouraged to bring forward their artefacts and heirlooms and stories from the period. And Eamon was to be one of my historical consultants for the day, along with Professor Diane Urquhart. Again, this was Eamon at his brilliant best, conversing with the public one-to-one, commenting on historical items and dealing with questions off the cuff. Nothing had been scripted that day and our historical consultants didn't know what was coming into the room next until about 30 seconds before, Uh, yet he knew the stories inside and out. On one occasion I gave forewarning that the next items coming into the room were football related from the 1921 partition era. Uh, Both Eamon and Diane declared their ignorance of football but Eamon to his credit said he'd give it a go anyway and lo and behold There he was a short time later with a sepia photograph of the Belfast Celtic team naming almost every single player from that time. Fantastic memories that day of seeing a master of work but what made it even more special was that my daughter was there uh, and she was only eight at the time and at the end of the event she came up to me and said look what I've got holding out her wee hand with a few pounds in it. Where did you get that? I asked. And she pointed sheepishly to the corner of the room where Eamon was packing up his things. And I've made sure, actually, that she doesn't let that moment fade from her memory as she gets older. Undoubtedly, the highlight of that year was, um, and maybe even my career, was when I was part of a small delegation of seven historians who met with Prince Charles, as he was then, in Belfast City Hall to discuss matters arising from the centenary. And without getting into the details of the whole day, which would be interesting in and of itself, my place at the table was directly beside Eamon and directly facing uh, Prince Charles. Uh, Now, Eamon and I were chatting away and filling time before the royal party arrived and the Lord Lieutenant was giving us some instructions on etiquette and how the questions were going to work with the Prince and, and all of this. 
And as she's talking to me, Eamon was like the naughty, I just described her like the naughty child at the back of the class, because he was talking away to me <laughs> as Fanula Joe Boyle's given uh, the instructions. Um, and he says to me, have you met the great man before, Jason? And I said, no, have you? And <laughs> at the same time, trying to listen to the, because I'd never met anybody from the royal family before, so I'm trying to listen carefully. Um, meanwhile, Eamon had launched into a whole story about how he had showed Prince Charles around St. Patrick's Catholic Church on, on Donegal Street, and it was really interesting. And so I gave up on Fanula and kept listening uh, to Eamon. And before I knew it, then the entourage sort of burst through the door. Um, I had a chance then to get my, my suit jacket on, and so all the photographs and all the footage that was taken that day is of me sitting facing the future king with just a waistcoat on and no jacket, and that was. That was crucial to the etiquette talk, apparently, uh, from Fanula J. Uh, O'Boyle, and so I always blame him in, uh, for that moment. And so when the meeting got underway then, we were all under strict instructions to limit our answers uh, to a couple of minutes or whatever it was, which worked great uh, until Eamon had his turn. <laughs> so he went off on a long story um, about the King opening the Parliament in May 1921, and Prince Charles was clearly interested, so much so that he made the mistake of asking a supplementary question. <laughs> and so Eamon got another bite at the cherry. Uh, and I think Mary Coleman will agree with you, because yeah, she was, she was there that day. We all smiled and, and laughed into ourselves that day as Eamon had another bite at the cherry. But finally then, um, another live television broadcast, this time for BBC Newsline, to mark the opening of the Northern Ireland Parliament. Eamon wasn't involved directly. In this one, it was Mary Coleman and I. It was my first ever live TV broadcast, and boy, was I feeling it that night, uh, as Mary will testify. Uh, especially when the dramatic BBC Newsline music kicked in, you know, and you just imagine. referee between Mervyn Gibson and um, Chris Donald. That's right. That's right. We were the meeting sandwich. But I, I, I fluffed my lines that night with the first question that was, that was asked of me, but I managed to recover it and uh, with the remaining questions. But I was really annoyed with myself. However, the next day. I went back into work, back into the Linden Hall Library, opened my computer, and I had an email from Eamon uh, to congratulate me because he had seen the broadcast and he thought it came across really well. But he went on to say not to worry about uh, fluffing my lines because that he too found it difficult uh, in the early days, which I find hard to believe. Uh, but eventually, he says, he, I'd get used to it if I stuck at it and not to let it put me off with sort of public appearances. But he didn't have to do that, uh, but he did. Uh, and for me, the thread that runs through all of uh, what I've said here, I hope, is how much of a people person uh, Eamon was. Because not only was he a great historian, uh, he was a great person too. Uh, and I hope that this has shone through in my personal reflection, because for me, he really was the people's historian. Thank you.